Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, this is Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another edition of Exploring Different Brains. Today, my friend Sean Smith is in from Canada. He's the founder of Don't Diss My Ability. Sean, welcome. You're returning, but I'm going to do the whole introduction again. All right. Well, your story is very interesting, and why don't you introduce yourself to who's ever watching this, seeing you for the first time? Sure. Uh, so Sean Smith, founder of Don't Diss My Ability. Um, unique story in the way that I identify as being neurodiverse, and I specialize as a counselor and psychotherapist in the field of neurodiversity. Uh, I was undiagnosed with ADHD until age 30, and you know, it took me four years to finish three years of high school, 32 attempts during 18 credits required to graduate, including failing grade 10 math four times, trudging my way through, uh, and then started taking medication when I was diagnosed at age 30, and uh, it gave my brain the jump start it needed, and it kind of took my brain from dial-up to fiber-op, and I went from the bottom of the class to the top, uh, and kind of battling my way through um, different social policies. I, I was disabled, but not quite disabled enough. So I started challenging uh, social policy and uh, kind of just getting my bearings and, and realizing that, you know, when people say the system's broken, it implies that it was intended to work in the first place. And the research that I've done uh, shows explicitly that it's not. And so I just kind of kept battling and was finally, uh, you know, I got into the Master's of Education and Counseling Psychology program at UNB. I was admitted on academic probation and graduated less than a year later at the top of my class. You were a young, young little kid of 24 years old when you learned how to count, huh? Yeah, like I, I used to, um, you know, go around with pocket change and, and I couldn't count it. You know, there'd be any type of stimuli. It could be lights or sound. And, and that's part of being neurodiverse is that we feel and sense things more deeply than others. And so, you know, I, I kind of describe my life as living in a, in a haze. And so I would go to start to count the change and then there'd be some type of stimuli it was like somebody erased the process from my memory to the point I'd get so pissed off that I'd just put it back in my pocket and walk away. And uh, at the ripe age of 24, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now, now wife, we decided to move to Lake Tahoe of all places. And I ended up getting a job as a, a blackjack dealer that I did not want. Uh, but because there are so many people, you know, immigrants that migrate there every summer to, to account for the tourist season, you know, I was the English-speaking Canuck. Uh, so they, they really were, were, you know, hounding me to do it. And so thankful that I did because I had something tactile to manipulate with my hands, then I could do it in my head. But I didn't have a framework to conceptualize what people were asking me to count. And so once I had that, I was able to do math in my head really, really quickly. But, you know, when somebody comes into my office and, and they disclose, you know, whether it's ADHD, um, Asperger's, autism spectrum disorder, even fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, you know, one of the things that I, I say to them is, welcome to the world of the uniquely gifted. And, and I believe it because I see it in myself and the work that I'm doing with these individuals and the success that we're having. Welcome to the world of the uniquely gifted. Yes. Well said. Thank you. So what inspired you to start your own organization? How did that happen? Um, I got really pissed off. Uh, I had been working, well, you know, when I went back to go to school and, and I, you know, I'm bilingual, which in Canada is, is, it's an asset to speak both official languages. I had a university degree and then, you know, I had a diagnosis. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get one of these cushy government jobs that everybody talks about. And so I enrolled in, in a 
our version of affirmative action. And I can't tell you how many jobs I applied for, but I can tell you how many interviews I had. None. And so when I went back to upgrade, I started, uh, I had to take five courses as a mature student, and they'll take that new GPA over your, your old one. And so I went from a 2.3 in my undergrad to a 3.7, and used those five courses to really dig into that, that program. Um, and so just started writing letters through our government to the right to, through the Right to Information Act, uh, where they have to respond. And I realized that it wasn't me, I'm awesome. It's the program. So in the 25 year history of that program, no one had, it had never been audited. No one had ever asked the questions that I asked. I, I wrote uh, one paper for two classes worth 100% of my entire grade with the same prof and got two A's for my work. So realizing that, you know, I was also a new, new dad when all this happened, right? And kind of realizing what kind of person do I want to be? Am I the type of person who can look the other way and pretend it didn't happen? I couldn't do that. So it, it just fueled my fire and what started off as, you know, people, even, even my wife saying, you know, oh, government wouldn't do that or the school wouldn't do that, you know, calling me kind of a conspiracy theorist. Well, it turned out to be true. In the school where I did my undergrad, uh, I, I don't talk about them because I don't want to publicize their name. But when I went back to upgrade, I was discriminated against twice and filed two separate human rights complaints against them. So in their affirmative action policy for, um, for new applicants, at the time they only recognized in their language blacks, aboriginals, and persons with physical disabilities. And so leaving out people with mental disabilities or disorders. And so I filed uh, two separate human rights complaints because the first time I applied, I ticked off the other box and put ADHD and they, they refused to recognize it. And so in my human rights complaints, uh, you know, and, and by naming certain visible minorities, therefore they're discriminating against all others. So I tried to work with the university uh, to, to pitch a, a collaborative, more inclusive policy, and they hired a huge law firm to take me on over the course of two years while I was doing my master's degree, while my wife was in the program that I was advocating against and had two small children. So it, it, I, I don't like to get got. You know, I, there's just something about knowing that you're intrinsically right in what you're doing and, and just, I, I don't know, I, I, can't, I just couldn't let it go. And so I, I just kept doing it. Now, is that part of the attraction of your wife to you, that you were like a pain in the butt? No, no, not at all. Because, you know, and, and that's interesting too, Hacky, because I was a different person. You know, I, I really was. It's, it's night and day, you know. I, I would say before I was diagnosed and, and became part of the disabled community, you know, I wouldn't say that I, I was uh, a, a bigot or, but things that I found funny then I no longer find funny now. And so it was really a, a shift for me. And, and part of it was being up north in Canada, like way up in the Northwest Territories and seeing, you know, the, the suicide rate for, you know, the gay, lesbian and, and transgender community. And, you know, my son was gonna be born and, and, you know, coming to this kind of epiphany of, you know, does it matter if my son is potentially gay? Like I, I just want my son and I wanted to be happy. You know, nothing, nothing else mattered. And so it was just, I, I had this aha moment of, you know, I just got goosebumps, you know, like we're all people. That's, that's all that matters there is that people are happy. Whatever lifestyle, whoever they are or choose to be, you know, what matters here in is the they're United happy. States, uh, back when I was chairman of the Boys and Girls Clubs, Broward County here, the Boy Scouts had come under 
scrutiny and there's a heavy, heavy amount of criticism uh, on both sides because they had decided they were not going to allow gay leaders. And so uh, I was being asked as chairman here, you know, what was the stance of the Boys and Girls Club? And I said, it's real easy. We don't discriminate. Yeah. What does that mean? It means we don't discriminate. <laughs> you know, pick a category. Yep. We don't. Now, if someone's not doing their job, if someone's doing the wrong thing, we'll throw them out. Just like anybody else. But, but the, yeah. you know, you, the, people would have already been hired. People in the organization may not have yeah. known. Yeah. But, yeah. so, yeah. It's very, very interesting. And it's great that you're a fighter. Now, did a lot of that fighting spirit come from football or cause you to go into football? And tell us about your football career. Sure. Um, you know, it's it's so strange to, to think back, hacky, because I played golf and hockey all of my life, and, and I never got any better. And so to, to grow up playing two sports like that and to watch my peers progress and get better, I got bigger, but I didn't get better. Uh, and then my first year of grade 12, a friend convinced me to try out for our, our high school football team, and, and we were a powerhouse. I mean, our... Our school was the largest high school, I think, in the British Commonwealth of 3,000 kids. Wow. So it was, a, it was a big school. Um, and so I, I tried out, and I made the team. First year, I didn't play a whole lot. My second year, I was an all-star. And so as an all-star, you get packages from every major Canadian university with a football team. And so I, I can remember, you know, you get called down to the principal's office, and, and it was a good one. <laughs> I went down, I got all the packages, you know, I kind of felt like a peacock. Uh, strutting on my way back, but then as I opened them one after another, I just slipped further into a depression. I couldn't go to any of these schools. And for the first time ever, uh, a, a CEGEP, a college from Quebec, decided to recruit out of province. And so the, the head reg registrar was also the defensive coordinator, and they snuck me in. I didn't have the grades to get in, but they snuck me in. And I went to summer school every summer, too. I found out two weeks before... Uh, uh, training camp started that I, that I actually graduated from high school and I was going to be moving to Montreal to go to school, which just seemed so foreign. To, I mean, I was transplanted from a small place into this huge urban center. So it was, it was a bit of a culture shock. But, you know, one of the things that um, my coaches would say, you know, there are two in particular, uh, um, Coach Lou Chapman and, and Coach Dennis Wade, who, you know, they don't subscribe to the dumb jock. Like, you have to be smart to play this sport. And, and you do. You really do. And so it kind of ingrained in me that, you know, it, you really have to think, you know, and, and they kind of instilled that in me, even though, and, and I was starting to see more success academically, which was odd to me because under my parents' roof, I couldn't do anything. And then all of a sudden I had this freedom and, and I was doing better, but I also got to pick the courses that I wanted to take, right? So that, that made a difference, but it was really, you know, being uh, accountable to the football team if, if you missed class then you know we had the honor system. You did this thing called the big three. So after practice and all the sprints and all the other stuff, if you didn't go to class and, and you, you know, they, they were gonna know. Uh, they just had to ask around. So we had to do this thing called the big three after practice was done where you'd have to crawl like crab one length of the field, do it backwards on the way back and then sprint back, you know, so it was, it was not worth it to not attend class. It really was, <laughs> like, it wasn't. It, practice was hard enough. I didn't need that. But, but, you know, in the odd time that I did miss class, I, I made a point of doing it 
um, you know, because it was a, it was a good lesson, right? Don't do that again. Well, the psychological aspects of training and sports, and good coaches can make a tremendous difference, just as a great teacher can. Yep. And of course, a great parent. I'll bet you're a great parent. How old are your little ones? Eight and six. I love it. What's their story? What are they like? Uh, my son is really into Pokemon, and he, he's a reader. I mean, we went to the library last weekend. He took out 22 books. And I think over the weekend, he probably read five or six. Like, he's just reads like nobody's business. Uh, and he's, he's smart as a whip. You know, my daughter's six. We didn't teach her how to print or, or add and subtract. He did all of that. So it's just <laughs> phenomenal to kind of sit back and watch that un unfold. But, you know, one of the, the cool things, you know, my wife and I have had a lot of shared experiences together. Like for, for many, many years, we worked together in, uh, you know, a therapeutic environment. So before we had our own kids, we worked for a company called Spurwink in Maine. And we were therapeutic foster parents for the Casco program, um, which was primarily at-risk youth. It was just so worthwhile to do it. So there's not a whole lot of stuff my kids are going to pull that we haven't already dealt with. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of nice that way. I like how you named your organization. Point Thank to you. your shirt there. Don't diss my ability. Yeah. How'd you get at that? Um, you know, when I started taking medication hacky, things started happening in my brain. The best way for me to describe it, you know, if you can think of an old, uh, you know, an, an old antique truck that you find somewhere, you know, in an old barn, and you want to you wanna get it going again. So you change the, the gas, you change the oil, you know, you pop the hood, and you start it up and you can see it starts to rumble, and you can see the, the flakes of rust chip and fall off, that's what happened to my head. And so uh, there was one night where I was on uh, kind of an uh, overnight watch of you know, one of the residents up north, and I, I couldn't sleep. Like my responsibility was to ensure his safety, so I had to, you know, his doors open, I had to keep eyes on him at all times. But things were just flowing in my head, and I listened to a lot of different music, and I just had this rap beat in, in my head. And I actually wrote a, a rap song called Don't Diss My Ability. And that's, that's how it came to be. How does our audience get in touch with you? I'm on Facebook. Uh, don't, I've got, I mean, I've got everything going. Every type of social media you can think of. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube channel, and, of course, uh, contributing blogger, blogger for a different brain. So... If anybody really wants to know where to find me, they can hit up your website if, if they're not able to find me through Google. And what's your website? Uh, ddmacs.ca, so ddmax.ca. Sean, can you tell us from, from your perspective, why is self-advocacy so important? It empowers people. I mean, it, I've, I've realized that the only person I can really count on is me. You know, as much support as I get from other people, I'm the only person who can make or break me. And if, if I'm not battling for what I feel is right, then who else is going to do that for me? And although there, there have been a lot of organizations that, you know, claim to, to, to advocate for others, I, you know, what I've found is that they, they do do that, but it's also about self-preservation. And I'm very transparent in, in what I do. And so for me, it's, it's not enough to say that I'm, I'm doing it. I, I want to actively be doing it and, and making a change. Uh, there's no smokescreen. Uh, you know, I, I am who I am. What you see is what you get. So it's, it's really about being 
transparent and, and staying true to who I am. You know, in the, in the last month and a half, I've had two nonprofits come back and apologize to me for dismissing me when I reached out to them last year. And so I, I, I have this saying, you know, I, I won't wait for anyone. Catch me now or catch me later. But I'm, I'm not going to stick around. So it, it's part of, you know, realizing that I'm, I'm the one who's in control. And one of my, my you know, best friends and, and one of my advisors, uh, Gene Fowler, who owns Luguru Animation, really helped me to see that, you know, although my business is, is located, you know, in, in where we are, a local area, that doesn't mean that my business has to be local. So he helped me to see kind of a, a global perspective. So counseling is one aspect of what I do. But because I have ADHD, I also have, you know, a very good understanding of how my thought process works. So I know that I can't do the same thing all day, every day. I'd get bored and then I get resentful. So I intentionally try to partner with creative organizations and work on these really amazing projects. What's the biggest single thing about what you do that somebody in our audience would have no idea and it would surprise them? If you can mm. think of anything, what might that be? Well, you know, a lot of parents come to me and, and they think that I'm going to work with their kids. And probably 95% of the time, I work with the parents. The kid's awesome. You know, it's, it's the world in which we live in and, and how things are framed. And so an example would be, you know, when a, a parent will come to me and say, you know, my kid's isolating. And, you know, they're, they're spending a lot of time, you know, watching TV or on their electronics. And so I, I reframe that for them. You know, if 90% of your day consisted of being told that what you're doing is wrong, would you want to spend time with you? And, and that's, that's just, you know, the honest way of framing it. You know, from the time that kid goes to school till the time they go to bed, right? Parents are at them to do this, that, or the other thing, and so are the teachers. You know, so no matter where they go, they're being crapped on. And so, and it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not perfect, and, and, but it's something that, you know, I, I use in my own life that, you know, I try to be mindful of, right, with my kids. Is that, okay, you know, where I'm, what percentage am I at today? Right? To be mindful of that, because if we're not, you know, what, what type of parent, what type of guardian are, are we being, right? And so I don't, I don't subscribe to an authoritative type of approach. I, I try not to, right? A lot of it has to do with natural consequences and helping parents to set up a framework so it's not them punishing their child, it's their child choosing the behavior, therefore choosing the consequence that goes with that behavior, but helping people to kind of frame that up. Well, listen, now we're, I'm so glad you're in visiting us here in Fort Lauderdale from Canada. You've really been an inspiration to us because you got that Jersey City attitude. That's what I'm <laughs> I think you and I both have a little bit of authority problems, but uh, I, I love your story. I love what you're doing for people. I love that you're a good family man and uh, that you're going out of your way to fight for those of us whose brains are a little bit different. So, Sean Smith, thank you for being on Exploring Different Brains. Anytime, Hacky. Love, love doing it. Anytime. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.